called his disciples and commissioned them to preach the gospel of Christ. This is their call to ministry. Uh, Previously, they had been converted and they traveled with Jesus throughout Galilee and they were listening to him preach. They were watching him do the many mighty miracles that he did. He healed people of all different types of diseases. And he saw that great, or they saw that great miracle where Jesus calmed the storm on the sea and then more supernatural power that he had in the spiritual world as he cast out demons. And that period of training that Jesus gave to the disciples was to capture their attention so they would be thoroughly convinced that he truly was the Messiah. And so when Jesus called them to go on their mission of preaching the gospel, of course he had his own mission in mind. His mission was that he would die for sin. He wasn't going to be on the earth very much longer. And so his mission was to go to the cross where he would die, then he would be raised from the dead, and then he would ascend back to his place in heaven. His ministry on earth was very short, but his compassion for the souls of men was great, and it was long because God had purposed before the foundation of the world to save people. Uh, Adam was created, and then he made this promise that anyone who would believe in him would be saved. And, of course, Jesus saves all of those up until the time that he promises to come back to this earth again. And his purpose in calling these men out was to send them with the gospel after he left. And so these are called apostles. It's a word that means to send out And they were to tell people that salvation has come. Salvation is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these men were called to preach the gospel. And so we find them here in the first part of chapter 10, as Christ gave them the power to do many of the same miracles that he did. He gave them the power to heal and to cast out demons. And those signs were validation of their calling. But most importantly, of course, their calling is the preaching of the gospel. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 10. If you'd stand with me once again for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read the first seven verses, but we're mainly concerned with verse number 2 and 3, 2, 3, and 4, the names of the disciples. Verse number 1 says, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus and Levius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today. And we just ask you, Lord, you'd open up the text before us today. Help us to give the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's my intention in these next several messages to introduce you to the 12 men that Jesus chose for ministry. A little bit later time, we're going to discuss the mission that Jesus gave them. But we're looking at the men themselves and looking at their different backgrounds and 
None of them, we would say, was very high at all on the list of any church's ministerial candidates. At least not at the time that they were chosen did they show any proclivity towards preaching the gospel or be people that would be called to preach. Uh, Jesus did not choose those that were worldly wise. These are not highly educated men. They didn't come from nobility. They weren't famous people. And in fact, some of them might have been infamous. And there was only one, or I should say all of them had to be retooled so they could preach the gospel. And there was not one of them that could be anything that they should be unless God should change them. And as we study this, we're reminded also that there's none of us that takes that has what it takes to work in God's kingdom. None of us are qualified. We're misfits for God's work just as much as they were. But what God does, he takes people that are like us, he takes us and he changes us and makes us useful for his kingdom. These are men that had to be strong so that they didn't break under the pressures of persecution. They had to continue to preach no matter what the difficulty. And that was necessary because if these men fail then it means that the gospel does not reach us today. None of us could be saved. Now, the point of the messages is to show you what God can do with people like them, and thus people like us. And we have been chosen to carry the gospel of Christ too. We, we have a commission to do the same thing that the apostles did. And friends, if we don't fulfill this commission that God has given us, then the next generation will not hear the gospel of Christ. So we need to be faithful to the Lord, to give the word as they gave. Now, we're speaking then about the first messengers. Now, we've already talked a little bit about this in a message a couple of weeks ago, but these are the first men that were called to be preachers of the gospel. And here they're given their first assignment. In verse number 1, they are the 12 disciples. They are learners, and that's what disciple means. But then in verse 2, they become the 12 apostles. That's that they are commissioned. They're sent out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Well, who are these men? Well, we have their names listed here. Peter and Andrew, his brother. James and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew. James, the son of Alphaeus and Lebius. Simon, the Canaanite. And Judas Iscariot. So those are the twelve. They're known by other names in the Scripture. Some of them have other names, and we mentioned that last week, so I'll refer you back to that if you're interested in finding out what the other names were. We'll bring that up as we go on in the next messages. But we don't want to be confused about them, so we'll mention those other names again. Who are they? Well, they're not perfect men. These are faulty men. And Jesus did not choose them for perfection. They were mortals, even though... We do have a tendency to look at them today as if they were larger than life, that they're people very much different than we are. Today they're called saints, but they're no more saints than any person in this room that's a believer in Jesus Christ. They weren't beatified and canonized or sanitized or anything else. They had, they had faults. And when Jesus chose them, they had faults. And amazingly, after he chose them, they were still men and they still had faults. And that couldn't have been any more evident than when we examine the most prominent of all the apostles. Now, we spent some time uh, in the last message speaking about Peter. Peter was the natural-born leader. Peter is the most prominent of these disciples. He's always mentioned first in the list, and that's because he was the leader. 
Now you'll notice in verse number 2 it says, the names of the 12 apostles were these. First, Peter. First doesn't mean that he was the first one to be called. First means that he's the primary one, that he's the, the leader or the chief among them. But Peter was not given any special Uh, privileges or any special power and authority that was different from the other apostles. They were all just like him. It's just that Peter became the spokesman for the group. He's what you would call a type A personality. And so it didn't matter what kind of an organization that Peter would be a member of, he was always going to be a leader of some sort. That's just the kind of guy that he was. I'm sure that in the fishing business that Peter had uh, with the other disciples that He was the one who made out the schedules. He was the one that says, here's where we're going to fish today, and tomorrow we're going to fish over there. It's just the type of person that he was. He was a leader. And so he's mentioned first in all of the list. Now, we talked about Peter the last time, so I don't have time to go into the different aspects of his life. So we're going to move on this morning and look at the other three disciples that are in the first group of four. And as I mentioned, there are always in the list of the disciples three different groups of four, and each group always has the same names in it. They may not be listed in exactly the same order, but each group always has the same four in it. And these four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, are at the top of the list all of the time, and that's because they are the ones that were closest to Jesus. Now, the second one, who's listed here in Matthew chapter 10, was Andrew. And Andrew is an apostle that we could say about him. He always brings people to Christ. Andrew was Peter's brother. And so, of course, that means that he was from the same place that Peter was. I talked to you about Bethsaida, that little fishing village on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where both Peter and Andrew were born. But at the time that Jesus started his ministry, both of them were living in Capernaum. Andrew lived with Peter in Capernaum. Andrew was originally a disciple of John the Baptist. And just that information alone tells us that he was a very godly man. And that's because John the Baptist preached the baptism of repentance. And Andrew realized that he needed to be a godly man. He realized the importance of living a godly life because John the Baptist said that before I'll ever baptize anyone, you have to show that you have repented of your sins. There has to be some evidence in your life. And so we know that Andrew could not have been a disciple. He could not have been baptized by John the Baptist unless he had evidence that he repented of his sins and that he was a godly man. Now, of course, it was John the Baptist's purpose to prepare people for the coming of Christ. And so in John chapter 1, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And there were two of John's disciples that heard that. One was John, and the other one was Andrew. So when they heard that, John the Baptist lost two disciples. Because both John and Andrew believed and they began to follow Jesus. Now what happens next is really an exciting part of this because Andrew, as soon as he knew who Jesus was, we read this about him in chapter 1. It says, One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. 
See, Andrew's greatest desire when he became a follower, became a Christian, is that he wanted to let others know about Jesus too. He wanted people to believe in Jesus. And, and that's typical of a person who becomes a Christian. It's not something that you want to keep secret. God always puts this desire in the heart of a true believer that he wants other people to know about Jesus. He wants to tell the gospel of Christ. And so Andrew was that kind of man. And an interesting thing about him was that he, he wasn't the out front visible disciple like Peter was. He wasn't well known and, uh, like, uh, like John was. But he was just somebody that stood in the background. I'm sure that Andrew preached. There's no doubt about that because he was called to be an apostle who would give the gospel to others. He did preach, but we don't have any record of any sermons that he preached in the scriptures. The biblical record about Andrew is always this. He's, he's like the ordinary Christian who simply has a desire to tell others about Christ. He wanted to give this wonderful news of the gospel of salvation. And that tells us that you don't have to be a great preacher to tell people about Jesus. You may not be a person who stands up in a pulpit and becomes a great preacher. Someone had to give the gospel to men like Jonathan Edwards. Somebody gave the gospel to George Whitfield. Somebody gave it to Charles Spurgeon. Somebody had to be a witness to Dwight Moody. But we don't read very much about those people or know much about them at all. We know about the preachers that were led to Christ... But somebody had to tell them. And that's the kind of guy that Andrew was. He's more of a in-the-shadows type of person. And he brought Peter to Jesus. And what a mighty preacher that Peter became. And Andrew knew his brother well. He knew that if Peter became a follower of Jesus, that he would end up being some sort of a leader. He knew his brother. And he was content to remain in the shadows and let Peter have the limelight And the claim to fame, or the lack thereof for Andrew, is always this. He's Simon Peter's brother. That's all we know. He's Simon Peter's brother. And that means Andrew was willing to take a back seat. And can you imagine that he probably grew up that way, always playing second fiddle to Peter, always the second kid in the family? I mean, the most important part, though, is getting Peter to Jesus. And how many souls were won to Christ because Andrew took Peter to Jesus? Peter preached that great message on Pentecost where there were 3,000 people saved in one day. And I believe that those 3,000 are credited to Andrew's account also. He receives a reward for that because he gave the gospel to his brother Peter. Now this is why I think that it's so important for you and for me to be always ready at all times to tell people about our faith. We never know the next person that we talk to may become a great preacher. The next person that we talk to could be the one who wins many souls to Christ. And that's credited to our account. So we need to be ready all the time to speak to people about our faith. Sometimes you might feel that you're just a little insignificant piece of this puzzle... But the truth is, it takes the little insignificant piece to make the puzzle the whole. And it takes every part doing its part. And as members of Berean Baptist Church, it takes every one of us working together to give people the gospel and bring them to the knowledge of Jesus. Well, here's another great thought that we find in the conversion of Andrew. Uh, John chapter 1, verse number 41 says, and this is Andrew speaking, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. 
John Butler writes and says, Here, an exclamation point needs to be inserted after Andrew's, We have found the Messiah. The great hope of the Jews was wrapped up in the coming of the Messiah. Therefore, to say that one had found the Messiah could only be said with great enthusiasm. It was exclamatory news. For millenniums, Israel had looked and waited for the Messiah. Now he's here. Andrew had spent much of one day in the presence of Jesus Christ, and the experience greatly inspired him and thrilled him. And I wonder if that's our reaction when we hear about Jesus. Are we thrilled that we found salvation in him? Well, Andrew was, and so he couldn't stop bringing people to Jesus. If you remember, it's Andrew who found that little boy that had the five loaves and the two fish, and he brought him to Jesus. And that was caused one of the greatest miracles that Jesus did during his, during his ministry. He had fed 5,000 people, actually many more people than that, with just five loaves and two fish. So Andrew was an apostle. He was given the authority to preach like all the others were. He, he healed. He cast out demons. And so he was a great man for the Lord. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Andrew. We have just very limited information about him. We don't know how Andrew died. Tradition says that he was martyred for his faith, and so at some point that great witness that Andrew had for Christ was silenced. It's said that he was crucified on a cross that was made like an X, and that's why an X is always the symbol for Andrew. Now, interestingly, Andrew is the patron saint of Scotland. You say, what does that mean? Absolutely nothing. It means nothing at all. Andrew has been called the patron saint of fishmongers, of people with gout, of singers, of people with sore throats, spinsters, maidens, old maids, women wanting to become mothers. He's the patron saint of all of that. I don't think the apostles needed symbols. I don't think that they should be worshipped. They never asked for statues to be made of them. They never wanted a symbol. They never wanted to be a patron saint of anything. They just preached Christ. And Andrew stayed in the background and gave his life for the gospel of Christ. Well, the next one on this list is James. And James we can call the wildly passionate apostle. James was the brother of John, and their father's name was Zebedee. And we don't have very much in Scripture about James either, except that we know that he was one of the disciples that was very close to Jesus. Peter, James, and John were the ones that were closest to him. Andrew is just a little bit further out. And several times we see in Scripture where those three, Peter, James, and John, are separated out from the group, and they're alone with Jesus. Jesus spent a lot of time with those three. They're the only disciples that were with Jesus when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were the only three that had a glimpse of Jesus in his glory on that mountain. They're the only three that were able to speak to those or see those uh, prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, that had been long since dead. They were three very close to Jesus. James was close to him, but like many of the others, he was a very rough character. He, he was a crusty, weather-beaten fisherman, just like Peter and Andrew. Now, his brother John, uh, P, uh, James and John, were partners together with Andrew and Peter in the fishing business. And the, these aren't recreational fishermen. The, these guys are in the business of, of catching fish, and business must have been pretty good. Because Zebedee, their father, was also in the business, and he was well enough off that he was able to hire employees to help him do the fishing. 
And you can read about that in Mark chapter 120. So here are four guys that are just really good contributors to the local economy. James and John were sons of Zebedee, but Jesus gave them another name. He called them the sons of thunder. Now, we don't know exactly why that that Jesus called them that, but we might have a clue, some kind of an indication in Luke chapter 9, and it's because of their very strange method of evangelism. Now, if you would, let's turn over there for just a minute to Luke chapter 9. And uh, the beginning of Luke 9 is actually a parallel to Matthew chapter 10. And going down to verse number 51 in that chapter... It tells us here that Jesus was ready to go to Jerusalem. He was actually going to celebrate Passover. And he sent his disciples as an advance party, sent them into Samaria to gather some provisions. Well, the Samaritans didn't like Jews, and the Jews didn't like Samaritans. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, the holy city. He's going there for for Passover. But the Samaritans didn't think very much about that, didn't like that too well, because they had their own holy place. They had Mount Gerizim. That's where they worshipped in Samaria. And Jesus disregarded that place of worship. So they weren't really very keen about helping him. Here's what happens in Luke 9, uh, verse number 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he, that's Jesus, should be received up, he steadily set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias or Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village." Now, there, folks, is a great method of evangelism. If you don't, if you find people that don't like the gospel, then you just call down from heaven, fire down from heaven, and just burn them all up. I mean, John and James were, were sons of thunder. And it's probably because of this wild passion that sometimes was uncontrollable. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, I mean, sometimes you ever get upset when there are people that don't believe like you? You know, I can get riled up sometimes when I see two Mormons riding down the street on bicycles, or I see Jehovah Witnesses going up to doors and passing out the watchtower, those people are deceivers. And whenever you invite them into your house and you try to convert them, it's very frustrating to deal with them. They're very hard people to deal with. They've been twice baked in that cultish religion, and so they're difficult. So have you ever secretly hoped that as they're riding down the street, they'd hit the curb with the bicycle and go flying over the handlebars? Well, if you do, you've got some of the sons of thunder in you because that's the way that James and John were. And we'll see in a moment how Jesus had to curb that kind of attitude and he had to channel their enthusiasm into a different direction. Then we have another incident with James. James and John sparked a little bit of rivalry between the other disciples by asking to be chiefs in the kingdom. One of them wanted to sit on Jesus' right hand and the other on the left. And I'm not sure, but it might have been that they were trying to beat Peter to it because he was always wanting to be the chief and up front, so they wanted to get to Jesus first. Let us sit on your right hand or on your left. And so they got that rivalry going between the disciples. But the last incident that I want to talk to you about is James' death. 
We don't really have a record of the deaths of any of the apostles in the Scriptures except two. One is James, and the other is Judas Iscariot. So when we talk about Peter and the way that he died, we rely on tradition. And Andrew, the way that he died, it's tradition. But when it comes to James, there is no guesswork about him. Now, if you look in the book of Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, we find Herod, who was a a wicked ruler, was very anxious to get rid of Christians, especially of the leaders. Now, there's one guy that really must have been a thorn in his side because he was the first apostle singled out to be killed for his faith. And so in the 12th chapter of Acts, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James the brother of John with a sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to take Peter also. A loud, boisterous Peter, he must have really been a catch for Herod to get him in prison. But James... James must have been the one that was really causing the problem. Herod, Herod uh, wanted him, and he grabbed him first. So James was probably thundering out against him, preaching against his sin, preaching against those self-righteous Jews. And so they were pleased as punch when Herod killed James. Now that's an ignominious end as far as the world is concerned because people were thrilled when James was killed. Now, today, things are a lot lot different. You know, they they take a serial killer and they put him to death in Texas, and there's all kinds of protest. I mean, the liberals are are crying out, crying their eyes out over something like that. Nobody sends happy execution cards. But that's what they did with James. They were excited about the fact that Herod had killed him. And, And James never did anything except just preach the gospel, tell people how to be saved, and tell them how they could go to heaven. So Herod killed James with the sword. He's the first apostle to be killed. Now, of course, Judas had died earlier, but Judas died from suicide. James is the first one to be killed for his faith. And the scripture says he was killed with the sword, and that means they beheaded him. So that's how James died. He wouldn't stop preaching, and so to the delight of the Jews, Herod had James beheaded. Now, that brings us to the fourth disciple in the first group, and this is John. And I think everybody knows about John. He is the apostle of love. That's the way he's known, the apostle of love. Now, we know a lot lot more about about, um, John than we do about James, but their attitude in the beginning was very much the same. I mean, John is the one who's the other half of the sons of thunder, now, as I mentioned before, he's in the fishing business with James and with Andrew and with Peter. And he is one of those first two disciples that recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Andrew was the other one. John is, the other, is, is another disciple who was the first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. James never wrote anything that's in the New Testament. We have no sermons that James preached, but John is different. He wrote the Gospel of John. That's his account of Christ's life. He wrote the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he wrote the last book of the Bible, the Revelation. James was the first apostle to die, and John was the last one to die for his faith. Now, John was remarkably transformed when he was trained by Christ. He was transformed from the son of thunder that wanted to rain down fire from heaven and consume unbelievers... He was changed from that to be known as the apostle of love. And so when you read things that John wrote, you'll read things 
a lot of things about love. You'll read about how God loved the world. find that in John chapter 3, and you find out how God loved his own son. And then Don talks about his personal love for those that were believers in Christ. And John is one who told us that we need to love other people. But John is also very much misunderstood in what he said about love. And there's probably no disciple more misunderstood than John because he didn't have this syrupy, milky, sentimental type of love that he's given credit for. John is always pictured. I mean, when people do paintings of him and things like that, he's always pictured as a long-haired, dopey, droopy-eyed, effeminate type of character. I mean, he looks like he should have been picking daisies or something rather than preaching the gospel. We have a picture. Yeah, there's the picture of him. I'm not sure if it's John or Joanna. I haven't really made that out yet. But, but John was not what I would call a sissy flower child. He understood God's love. He understood God's sacrificial, Christ-sacrificial love. He understood that God loved his own before the world began. He understood God's wrathful condemnation upon sinners. John was somebody who loved the gospel, but he hated false gospels. And so you wouldn't want to be a Mormon and show up on John's doorstep. He wrote in 2 John that if somebody comes to your house with a false gospel, you don't let them in the house. And he said, you don't wish them good luck when they head back down the sidewalk. He taught that you would discourage any lies that they tell any way that you can. So the Apostle John was the kind of guy that as they walked down the sidewalk away from the house, he turned the lawn sprinklers on or squirted them with water hoses they went. That might be a little bit of exaggeration, but there's no missing that John called such people liars. He went as far as to call them antichrist. And it's clear from reading 1 John, he had no patience for a false gospel. And you know most people today don't think very much about that. I mean, they're happy to include Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses in the Christian faith, but not John. He had no patience for that. He had no patience for sacramentalism either. And that doesn't mean people from Sacramento. Oh, that, that's a subject for another day. But it's not, it's not that. Sacramentalists are those who believe in keeping sacraments for salvation. I mean, things like keeping the Eucharist, taking the Eucharist, or, or baptism, or penance, and things like that. He also didn't like sacerdotalism. Sacerdotalism means somebody making a sacrifice, an offering for you. So he would have been very, very much opposed to this thing of the Mass. John did not like false gospels, and he wasn't going to put up with it. And you can read through what he wrote, and you can see that. So you can argue against the deity of Christ, as the Mormons do, and you can argue for salvation in some other way than justification by faith alone, but you don't expect lovely John to come and pat you on the head and say, my, what a fine little Christian you are. That's when John becomes a son of thunder again. Now, another interesting note about John... And if you turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, we're going to look at a few verses here, and there's a very peculiar way that John refers to himself. He never mentions his name in any of his writings, except Revelation. There he mentions his name. But in the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he never mentions his name. And the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John is a good example of this. Now, if you look at the first part of the chapter, this is talking about the resurrection. And it says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, under the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple, 
whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Now you see in verse number 2, John refers to himself as that other disciple, or the other disciple. In verse 3, that other disciple. In verse 8, that other disciple. And the Gospel of John is filled with that. John always speaks in the third person. He never mentions his name. In the 13th chapter, verse 23, he writes, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. In chapter 21, verse 7, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. So he never mentions his name there. John wrote this about 50 or 60 years after he became a Christian. And you know the difference, or see the difference, or notice it from how he acted earlier? I mean, he started out like his brother James with a call down from uh, fire out of heaven type of evangelism. He was right there with James, asking to be prominent in Christ's kingdom, desiring to sit right next to the throne of God. And if he could do that, everybody would know his name. But in the end of his life, he has no desire like that. He is so humble that he wrote this gospel account from the third person, never giving his name. And you know why? It's because he believed that Christ is everything. He believed that he was nothing. He believed that Christ deserved all the glory. He didn't have to be prominent. And so he just lovingly devoted himself to the Savior and to others of God's people. How different that is from today's Christianity. You ever think about that? Every time that there is is an argument, a squabble among Christians, do you know what it's over? It's always because somebody wants to be first. I deserve my rights. I don't deserve to be treated this way. Selfish desire is always the fuel for arguments in the church. And so, do you know what happened to John? What, what did he deserve? I mean, you think about John, called the apostle of love, a man who loves people, who's kind and he's gentle. Surely he needs a statue or something. Let's do that for him. He deserves to be carried on silk pillows and treated with kid gloves. But John never demanded his rights. And he never even told us about this, that scholars believe that he was boiled in oil. They tried to kill him, but he didn't die. And so grossly disfigured, probably scarred, probably a very scary sight, he was exiled to a rocky island called Patmos, and that's where he died. Now, once he was the great pastor of the Ephesian church, but he was boiled in oil and then sent to that rocky island. Oh, but something happened there. One of the greatest things that ever happened to anybody happened there because that's when God gave him the revelation. Now, earlier, he had seen just a glimpse of Christ in his glory. That was on the Mount of Transfiguration, just a glimpse. But when God gave him the revelation, he was given a a full view of the King of Kings riding on a white horse, coming to rule the earth in all of his glory. What a man John was. He died at about 
a hundred years old and faithful to the very end. So what kind of people does God use? Well, he used Peter. He was a bossy loudmouth. He used Andrew, the kind of guy that's sort of meek and stays in the background and just brings people to Jesus. He used James, who was a son of thunder, and his hero was Elijah. I mean, he, he liked to call down fire and destroy people that aren't true worshipers. John was also a son of thunder, but he was teachable, and he became the apostle of love. Now, friends, it tells us that these are people that are just like us. We are misfits for God's kingdom, and they were too. Until Christ changed them, they were misfits. They were just four guys that got a fishing boat, just four ordinary guys, no claim to fame. But Jesus called them, and they believed. He converted them. He commissioned them, and then they became fishers of men. The reason they're famous is because of what Jesus did in their lives. They would never want to be put up in stained glass windows. They don't want to be the patron saint of anything. They don't want anybody to make a statue of them. They only desired that the name of Christ would be exalted and his gospel would be preached to the ends of the earth. And I hope that's what you want to do. I hope that's what this church continues to do. We are sinners that are saved by the grace of God. We have an obligation to the Great Commission to give that gospel to others and to be ourselves fishers of men. That's what God's called us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look in your word today. And we see such, such great men only because of what you did in their lives. And Lord, we just ask that you would work that same work of the Holy Spirit in us, that we would become great witnesses for you. Help us not to shirk that responsibility. I pray, Lord, for people here today who may not know you as Savior, and how important that that is, that we know who you are, that we know that there is a hell that people that die without you are going to. And so we want to know you. We want to have that relationship with you. And we want to tell other people that there is a way to go to heaven, and it's through you. Lord, help us to be witnesses as they were. Speak to some heart today, Lord, and just open up our understanding, open up our eyes to the importance of worshiping you, following you, doing everything that you command, especially in this area of evangelism, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless us today as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.